Father God, Lord Christ, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the grace that we find in the cross. We accept the cross as the mantelpiece, the centerpiece of our lives by which we are ordered to live. But we know also that we cannot do it without you. We know also that nothing can be accomplished unless it is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray that you might speak through me that the sermon might be an opportunity for your voice to be heard. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Um, So I know it's not, you know, Orthodox Methodism for anyone in the pews to like yell out like, oh, amen, you know, yes, hallelujah. Um, But I felt so spirit-filled when I was writing this sermon that if you do feel compelled to do that, please do. I won't judge you. Um, and it would make me feel really good, too. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's a win-win. Um, <laughs> um, so a good friend, a pastor and a good friend of uh, Michelle and me, uh, her father just passed away last week. Uh, so if you could keep Carla Kincannon and her family in your prayers Uh, that would be greatly appreciated, even if you don't know her, um, which I I know many of you don't. Uh, She is a good friend, so please uh, keep her family uh, in your prayers. The reason I asked you to do that um, is so that I can begin this sermon by talking about death. Oh, invigorating, right? It just makes you feel young. Um, Sounds super positive, too, right? Um, I know it's not... And I'm sorry, um, but I really didn't know how else to start off talking about the scripture today. Death, as inevitable as it is for all of us, seemed equally as inevitable as the starting point for my sermon. It's the only adequate metaphor that I could come up with. It's the only applicable fact of our lives that is so unavoidable that it only makes sense to place alongside the story that Paul is telling. So as I said... Carla's dad died last week. I saw Carla around Aldersgate a few days ago, um, asked how she was doing, uh, and tried to offer a few words of comfort. There isn't often much to say about death. There isn't often much to say about the desensitization to death that we all endure in our lives. You know, our culture so inundates us with facts about civilian casualties, about death from starvation in sub-Saharan Africa, about death everywhere, all the time. It's around us constantly. We often forget that when we talk or see talk of death on the news, that real people died. That those 400 refugees crossing the Mediterranean or the 30 bodies found in collapsed building, or the 68 burned after bomb drops, are actually human. We forget that they had lives, family, a history. Death is by no means natural. That's sort of an odd claim to make, considering that it's like probably the only universal fact of human existence. But death isn't natural. 
Now, why is that? Death's not natural because it's a result of sin. Death confines us to a time without Christ. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes, but before I get too philosophical, I should probably actually pay some attention to the Scripture. Um, so Paul is in the Scripture is always implicitly talking about death uh, because he's always talking about the power of sin, capital S, and the results that it has achieved. Scare quotes, achieved, right? Um, most people, when they you know, preach this scripture, only preach verses uh, 14 through 25, but I think verse 13 is incredibly important to our understanding of what Paul is trying to articulate here. Yeah, can we? That's great, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I sincerely think that we can't read 14 through 25 truthfully if we don't read 13 with it. Um, but in like almost every Bible that has subsection headings, 13 is always broken off from 14 to 25. I don't understand it. Um, so, but, but before, so we should start there. But before we do that, there are five things that I want you to remember from the scripture today. All right? Five things. Just five. That's like not that many. Like we can count that on our hands. Um, so one, the emphasis on the parallel with Adam. Two, Paul is always speaking from a rhetorical eye, the eye of the psalmist. Um, that is, he's speaking as the nation of Israel. So whenever he says I, it's not Paul himself, but Israel. Um, three, this isn't about Paul's own personal inner conflict. Sin, sin is still the subject of this narrative. Four, Torah is not bad. I don't want anyone to come out of this thinking that I have a problem with Jewish reverence for Torah. I don't. I, I, I swear, Jesus was a Jew. Um, and five, all of this, all of what Paul says, and all of what I'm about to say, is always said in light of Christ. Only in light of Christ. So when we, when we read this, it, it's sort of confusing and, and hard to make sense of. Uh, but Paul actually is like trying to argue something here. Uh, it's not just a set of elaborate musings or a confession on life or his struggle with uh, the law and, and Torah. Um, it's intricate and it's structured and it's a real argument. So what I want to do is take us through part by part and hopefully at the end provide a coherent message for what this means for us, why Paul thinks this is so important, and why he even writes this section. So I want to begin by noting that there is a war motif that is carried throughout this whole passage. War is uh, somewhat paradoxical uh, for us. It's an act of violence that brings about peace. It's a, a good that brings evil. It's an apt description of the paradox of sin. So Paul writes, it, is, it was sin working death in me through what is good. Israel, the I, the me here, uh, exhibits some really weird behavior, right? It, it's, something's not right. Something's up. This paradoxical behavior is meant to show that even under Torah, or rather under 
Israel's allegiance to it, Israel belongs to the realm of sin and death, the Adam sphere, the fallen life, the lapsarian life, the life in which sin and death reign, and in which there is no option to recognize a life beyond that. That's Paul's platform. That's where he begins. He's beginning in a time held hostage to the power of sin, capital S. So in verse 7, 13, um, he's exhibiting sin's ability to take our best efforts, our purest intentions, our most righteous desire, and turn it on its end, completely flip it upside down. See, the law isn't bad. It's still a God-given good gift, but it's held captive. It's taken over. Anybody following the militaristic language here? But Paul notes that there is no differentiation for us between the law in itself and the law as taken over by sin. That's why sin is so present and potent. Because we can't make that differentiation even in the thing that is considered most good. The theologian N.T. Wright uh, wrote in his commentary on Romans that Torah has been made its own shadowy doppelganger. I was like, wow, that's a really great line. I should probably use that. So there's nothing wrong in delighting in Torah, he maintains, but it has been taken over by sin. Now, even when Torah arrives on Mount Sinai with Moses, Israel's already acting within the confines of Adam's trespass, right? We're already acting in the age in which we are captive to sin and death. Paul knows that the Jews conceive of Torah as the highest good, but for him, it's corruptible and captive. The power of sin is exemplified in that it has taken the highest God-given good and turned it on itself. For the will to do good through Torah is present, but it can't be accomplished without the contortion of sin. Torah, the highest good, the thing that is handed down from God. It's made the base of operations. Again, military, the base of operations. So that it might be exemplified as the most sinful power of sin. In short, Torah is taken over by sin so that sin might become the highest sin. The greatest good turned into the greatest evil. Now, after this, Paul has somewhat exonerated the law. He's he's sort of acquitted Torah. He's placed the blame on sin, right? It's not with Torah. It's that sin has taken it over. So from there, Paul's able to move to the rhetorical eye, the nation of Israel, and its personal relationship with sin. So in verse 714, Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit. Now, here's where it's important to remember that this isn't Paul's own inner soliloquy. It's not about being puzzled by his own paradoxical behavior. It's not what 
Paul is writing about, and to say that would be to blunt his point. This is about the infiltration of sin. We have to remember that. The two Greek words that are used here to describe the flesh throughout the whole passage, sarkinos and sarkikos, both mean flesh, but they mean flesh in type, sarkinos, and character, sarkikos. And based on this, we would be remiss to think that what Paul is talking about is a real differentiation, a real distinct difference between, you know, my arm and my spirit. Paul sees no such thing. And there, Paul states, I don't understand my own actions. He's not attempting any breaking of the person into two, the sinful person and the not sinful spirit, um, because he's acknowledging the fullness of sins taking over. You know, to break it into two would, to give, would be to give us some credit. And Paul doesn't want to do that. So here's where it gets good. So try not to fall asleep on me now. Um, it, you know, it happens at Alder's Gate sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you guys are much better, though. Uh, don't tell Jason I said that. Um, so here's where it gets good. Paul writes, In fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's not my fault, Paul exclaims. And neither is it yours, nor is it the nation of Israel from the perspective of whom Paul is writing. It's not. It's the indwelling of sin. The blame is on sin, not us. That's grace if I've ever heard. Now let's, let's focus on the language for a second, the language that Paul, use, Paul uses. The indwelling of sin. So dwelling means for us, you know, uh, colloquially, a, a place to stay, a home, a place of, of living, right? A place to wake up, eat, drink, teep, talk, sleep, and yeah, have sex. The verb from which dwelling is derived, oikeo, also means to inhabit, to invade. Paul is choosing that language of dwelling purposefully in order to draw draw up this irony of sin living in us, even though it causes our death. Death, capital D. From us, from our destruction and contortion, from our perversion and misdirection, that's where sin draws its strength. Just as we draw strength from the very beds that we sleep in. Sin has made its home in us. So Paul then moves uh, and he names the I in uh, verse 24. Can we get verse 24 up here again? Right. So uh, I think a better translation of the Greek here uh, isn't miserable, but wretched. Um. Paul says, uh, I'm a wretched human being. Human being 
anthropos, a universal term in the Greek for all of us, regardless of gender. So when, he, when Paul says this, wretched man, wretched human, he's humanizing and personalizing the allegorical nature and the allegorical nation of Israel. In saying this, in naming the I as wretched, Paul alludes back to the beginning of the biblical narrative. Now, just as Cain bore the mark of his brother's death, so too does Israel find the mark of sin so inescapable. Through the law before Christ, we are unavoidably wrapped up in chains, enslaved to Adam's humanity and the solidarity of sin that follows. And Paul's worry doesn't end with sin, but continues with the death that comes with it. The body, Paul says, is subject to death. So here we are again, back at the beginning, where we started with death. Sin and death really just makes you feel good, right? 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 Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I can't just end my sermon there, right? I, 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 I can't do that. I can't leave you there. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it, well, so the, the scripture doesn't end there. Um. Yeah, so I'm actually not going to talk about that last sentence. Okay, uh, so we could, we could end it there if you wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I can't end my sermon there. Because I'd be ignoring the answer to the question, right? I'd be ignoring Paul's response to the question, who shall deliver me? His answer, plain and simple, is Jesus Christ. God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, in my youth, I never found that answer to be sufficient for some reason. It seemed too short. Didn't explain enough. But now, in light of a rereading of this text... It rings incredibly true. Now, pay attention. What I'm about to say is really important. Not that the other things that I've said haven't been important, but this is, like, really important. The I, Israel, us, is vindicated because of Christ. That is, he was a man of flesh, a human Yet sin found no home in him. In Christ, there is no indwelling of sin. The house of sin and death that Israel found in itself, in its greatest good, was broken in the indwelling of God in Christ. I'll say that again. The house of sin and death that Israel found in itself, in its greatest good, is broken in the indwelling of God in Christ. 
this is, this is the climax of Paul's argument. The answer Paul gives is God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here we have a full tripartite Christological claim. It, and I know I threw a few big words at you there, but it, that just means a three-part study of Christ. For Paul... The answer is only a reality in which all three of these claims are true. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you might say, oh, David, but Jesus Christ, that's one claim. It's not. Christ is a name attached to Jesus only after the gospel, only after his life. You know, Jesus didn't go through uh, his ministry as Jesus Christ He went through his ministry as Jesus of Nazareth. So, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, the full human reality of God in the flesh. Christ, the Messiah, the one who, through grace and without regard for the history of the person, saves and delivers. Our Lord, the one who is presently reigning over us. The only one to whom we owe any of our allegiance and the predestined yet temporally located existence of God's lordship. Those three claims, that's the climax of Paul's argument. So what does that mean for us? What does this mean for being a Christian without being a jerk? Let's put it this way. And, and here's where I'll, mel- I'll welcome the amens and hallelujahs. I'm just kidding. I'm not like actually trying to pressure you to do it. You know, if the Spirit moves you, though. <laughs> so let's put it this way. We should recognize that this passage isn't just about sin vaguely stated, but, our, but it's about our unique inability to defeat the power of sin, capital S, our flawed nature. So being Christian means recognizing that we're no better. We're still people. We're just as unavoidably sinful as our atheistic neighbor. And let me remind you, Christ died for them too. When you realize that the sin of your neighbor is your sin as well, that they are both taken up with the same power of sin that Christ defeats on the cross, only then can we begin building the bridges of reconciliation. When you realize that you are not innocent, that you are culpable and powerless in front of sin, despite your best, purest, and most righteous intention, only then can we rid ourselves of the plague that is self-righteousness. When we realize that we are trapped by the power of sin, trapped by premonitions and prejudices, judgments and hatred, we recognize that we are powerless. 
we are powerless because aside from the cross, without the fulfillment of humanity that is Jesus Christ, without his blood, without his crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Without his death, without the three days, without the empty tomb and the proclamation he is risen, there is no freedom from sin. Without the resurrection, the law is not fulfilled. The power of sin isn't abolished. And the new age of the new Adam never comes to fruition. You see, Paul only writes about the power of sin with the resurrection in mind. Only in light of Christ. Because without it, without Christ, without the risen God who breathes peace onto his disciples, we are no longer free in our bondage to God. We are bound, enslaved by sin, banished across the the abyss that we cannot bridge. But that's the beauty. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. What we Christians so often forget is that when Christ died, he died for all sinners. That means everyone. That means that you're no better than the person next to you. (laughs) Thank you. That means that we have to destroy and disregard our judgments of others because Christ, being the only perfect one, refused to judge them. That means shedding our premonitions as those belong to the realm of sin and death. If we are to take seriously the idea that we as Christians are meant to imitate the life of Christ, then judging people, throwing people out, creating barriers, building walls, closing borders, provoking war, ignoring starvation, all of these are sins because they betray the very freedom in bondage that we find in Christ. I offer to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom we find the salvation that makes possible our reconciliation. Amen.